Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Small Council Radio. Uh, it's great to be back, finally. Um, I'm sure you guys have noticed that I've been gone quite a bit. Um, that was actually due to, uh, I ended up getting COVID uh, right after Christmas, uh, I believe on like the 28th, and uh, it's been a roller coaster ever since. Um hit me pretty hard. Uh, first week, it was not too bad at all. But then uh, it just up and down, up and down the whole time. I'd feel better one day and feel right back where I was the next day. Um, ended up having to actually go to the hospital for about three days. So it's uh, it's definitely um, been a crazy uh, two and a half weeks. Uh, but I'm glad to be back. Um, just waiting on my uh, co-host here. So while I do that, uh, just kind of. Um, give a couple shout-outs uh, at the beginning like we normally do while we're waiting for some uh, either guests or co-hosts. Um, I do want to remind everyone this is a non-Ice and Fire uh, shout-out, but um, CMON has their Marvel's, uh, or Marvel Zombies Kickstarter uh, happening in, I think it's an hour and a half from now. I think uh, I want to say it's 2 p.m., um, Central Standard Time, 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Um, so definitely check that out. Uh, it looks amazing. If um, if you guys guys have ever played uh, uh, Zombicide of any form, you know how awesome uh, the game system is. Uh, I personally did the zombie uh, or the modern version. I went all out there and. Uh, and then I went all out with, uh, like, the medieval, the Black Plague. Um, I had so much stuff after that, though, I didn't really do any any past those. But I went all out for both of those and have, like, everything you could possibly get for the, the first two renditions of Zombicide. But this one, uh, I'm counting down the seconds pretty much right after the show. I'm jumping on Kickstarter uh, and backing it in all everything they have, uh, all the options, all the exclusives, everything. I'm jumping on and going full tilt with the Marvel Zombies, so definitely check that out. Um, I mean, it's Marvel, it's a Zombicide. I mean, I'm making a prediction that this is going to be their biggest one yet, uh, and just from what I've seen for gameplay, because uh, you can go out there and you can watch uh, Michael Schnall and uh, a couple other people playing it on TTS, and it looks awesome. Uh, and I have every uh, bit of confidence that the models are going to look fantastic. Um, so uh, with that said, um, I do have my co-host here. Brett, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, so if you guys have not already seen the title, as usual, uh, it is list building for each mission. Um, we did do a similar-ish topic uh, quite a while ago, uh, but this uh, was requested by a viewer um, or a listener, and I wanted to kind of come back uh, from my hiatus, you know, doing a, a fan-requested uh, uh, topic. So, um, so that's uh, that's our topic for today. So. This topic can be pretty broad. Like, there's a lot you can jam pack into this topic. Obviously, we don't have unlimited time. Um, so, 
for the most part, we're gonna I'm gonna try to do a little bit of both. We're gonna go through each mission, and we're gonna give a general, um, you know, some general tips for list building, and then maybe give uh, a couple like example lists, uh, you know to play for very specific missions. Now, that's something to keep in mind though, like if you if you know what mission you're gonna play, you can tailor your list to be uh, perfect for that mission. Um, this is this is something some people do casually, like, you know, uh, people like to have their lists and the mission already ready by the time, you know, before they ever even, they'll just be like, hey, you want to meet up this day? We'll do this many points, this mission, and then they'll uh, get a list ready, and when they show up, they just, they have it. So that's definitely one, one reason why you might have a tailored list. Another might be uh, some tournaments do, uh, tell you what missions they will be running, or at least a pool of them. Um, I've seen a ton of mission, or a ton of tournaments actually, where they'll be like, "All right, um, it's we're going to play three rounds, and we're doing it from these five missions." And a lot of times, it's just a personal preference of what people have deemed more tournament uh, fair or tournament friendly. Um, me personally, when I do my monthly tournaments, uh, I just rotate them out. I do very I. Uh, because missions can be kind of swingy more than others, um, I what I do for our monthlies is we do three rounds, and I um, set them. I, I just tell you exactly which three. You don't know what order they'll come in, but you'll know exactly what three missions. Uh, but then I rotate them out every single uh, um, uh, month. I might not rotate all three, but you know over the span of you know. Uh, like three or four months, we'll hit basically every mission. Um, there are some missions where we, we avoid them completely just because even when you know the mission's there, it just it can get a little unfair sometimes or, um, you know, some problems that might arise. So, uh, But for today, uh, even with that said, there are some missions that are clearly better than others in my opinion. We're going to avoid... Uh, Storm of Swords, uh, but otherwise we will still talk about um, every other mission. Um, with that said, uh, the first two I want to kind of talk about in conjunction with each other uh, is uh, Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. And the reason being is both of these missions have objectives that uh, when you, as soon as you touch them, even just a fraction, you pick up that token and then you uh, drop them either by uh, being attacked by a unit with more ranks or failing a panic test. Uh, and the panic test part, I think, is uh, I think both of those uh, stipulations is a big reason why I kind of want to lump them together. But we will still kind of differentiate where, because uh, they are still quite different. Um, uh, for example, Feast for Crows, if you haven't already played it, uh, you have to stay on the corpse pile and... Um, you know, you're kind of limited. You can't really run away with it. Whereas Dance with Dragons, uh, you pick it up, your movement becomes two, and you can't uh, march. Uh, so you can kind of run away with it, but it takes a lot of extra resources to do so. Um, so uh, I'll start it off by just mentioning high morale. Um, High morale is always great. Uh, I think it is a very underutilized uh, tool uh, a lot of the times. 
Um, and you can even supplement it in. Uh, for example, free folk throwing mance in there for that mance bubble. Uh, Greyjoys have, I would say, across the board, a little, they have like average morale. Uh, we'll put it that way. Like, they have some stuff that's bad morale, some stuff that's great morale, but I would say across the board they have about an average morale, but they also have a ton of ways to increase that morale. Um, so, uh, just morale in general, uh, having one list that's like super impervious to morale is great. Um, now, again, with these, if you have less ranks, uh, you uh, just being sim- simply being attacked, like you could get attacked and, and not take a single wound and drop the token or give it up. Um, so that also means that these two missions are inherently bad for any Dothraki force or any like you know uh, list that has like a ton of cavalry units. I know there's a lot of uh, like double flayed men uh, or double heavy cav lists out there, and uh, don't get me wrong, um, those units are still great in this mission, but you do have to keep in mind that uh, you know. If you're if you grab that objective first and your opponent attacks you, they don't even have to do a single wound. They will take it. Um, not to mention if they do do a bunch of wounds and you feel your panic, <laughs> then you'll doubly lose it. But definitely for these two missions, um, having like a lit because you know most most tournaments will allow for a two list format, and uh, having one of your lists just be like super morale focused uh, is in my opinion, always a great option to have out there. Because uh, not even for the missions, because that's still two missions out of uh, the handful of missions that can be chosen. Um, but even just uh, if you face your opponent who has like a panic-heavy a panic-heavy um, uh, panic uh, list, you know, if they're Boltons, or, like an all-Bolton force or Lannisters or whatnot, um, even Greyjoys have uh, some pretty nasty... Uh, panic uh, combos between the silenced men, the uh, reapers, and some of the attachments and commanders and stuff they can run. So um, having high morale is always, uh, in my opinion, a great uh, option to have. Uh, what about you, Brett? What's, uh, what are kind of your um, tactics uh, for list building when you know um, it's going to be one of these two missions or both? Well, to be honest, I'm I'm a little bit different from you, and I think I think I'm a little bit different from people in general. I think for the most part, people do consider the mission. Um, when I build lists, I build them, uh, you know, to handle my opponent, to handle the the builds. I have the tendency to kind of get a feel for what the meta is, kind of get a feel for what lists I know are powerhouse lists. And then I build lists that answer those. So I kind of consider the mission, but at the same time, a lot of times I don't really play missions. Um, when I do my Lannister pairing, it's definitely I run the Roost list that's built to desi- built to handle Greyjoys, built to handle Targaryens, built to handle Free Folk, um, built to handle Night's Watch specifically. But it's also my more aggressive list. It's it's my list where I'm more or less just going to not necessarily try to table you, but it's definitely designed to take out your biggest, best pieces and eliminate your ability to kind of swing back. And then I have a Tyrion list that's designed, I mean, I guess you could say it's designed to play 
objective type missions, but it's more or less also just designed to uh, play against stuff like, um, you know, where I don't think that my Tywin NCU and my Flademen and stuff like that are going to leverage me enough. It's like a survival kind of list. The Tyrion list is defensive and has control. The Ruth list is horribly aggressive and has control. So it would depend on who, on what faction my opponent brought is, is what I would choose for Dance with Dragons. Both of the lists that I run are generally capable of playing a mission, and this is true for any army I run. I kind of just build all-comers lists. I don't really build, like, these super specialists, like, um, you know, super techie kind of lists, which probably sounds contradictory because I just said I kind of tech to the meta, but it's pretty much an all-comers, and I've got in mind, like, hey, in case I play against Night's Watch Double Crossbows, I've got, you know, uh, three or four poor fellows. I've got Warrior Sons of Champion of the Faith that can tank them, and I've got Flayed Men that can go engage them. Uh, when I'm running Targaryens, I'm thinking, well, I've got Blood Riders with Call Drogo so I can go hunt the Watch Captains. I've got ranged attacks so that I can shoot at the conscripts and things like this. And that's generally kind of how I just approach the game anyway. It's not so much tailoring to the mission because I always feel like I can play the mission and adjust as I need. My problem more or less comes in when I don't have answers for certain meta stuff. That's where I get hung up. So I build against that stuff. Uh, you know, these two missions are easy in my opinion for, to, uh, to like kind of tech for, because um, like I was mentioning, just, just high morale and high morale is such a universally good thing that um, you can you can kind of like build it to have high morale and it will just incidentally be like an all comers type list still um, even though it'll be much you know much more effective at the things that are trying to hurt your morale but um, you know let's say you have like this super high morale list and you're uh, um, you know facing something that doesn't really have a lot of panic uh, tech or uh, panic damage and now I mean you're almost uh, you know ensuring that you're just never going to fail um, you know they're going to have to straight up have more ranks than you uh, after they attack you um, because they're not going to be able to make you drop these objectives uh, from the panic portion of it, uh, which, has, you know, that's half the battle uh, in these missions. Um, Dance of Dragons, um, I think I think it's a bit more fair and a lot more interesting of a game, uh, game mode between the two. Um, this one, you know, like I mentioned, you can kind of run away with this one. So uh, even building, you know, a list with some fast, high morale units like... Um, Bastard Scrolls uh, could be great for these guys, or for this uh, mission. Reason being, you go up there, you grab that uh, objective first, um, you know, start shooting at some stuff, and then if they attack you and don't take that objective, I mean, you can um, you can uh, retreat from them after they attack you as long as you know if you still have that objective because the retreat is still d6 plus two so if you can get lucky enough and roll uh, a six on there um you can get 
eight inches away and then just constantly move two inches back, especially with Bastard Squirrels being able to continuously shoot uh, your opponent. Um, now, granted, the speed isn't going to matter much once you have the objective, obviously, because your, your speed's just going to go down to a two. But getting there really fast, um, you know, way before your opponent will definitely give you an edge. Now, um, Feast for Crows is a bit more tricky. Um, I found uh, I found a lot of success. I'm talking, I can't remember the last time I actually lost Feast for Crow by using this tactic, but the one, I guess the one downside with Feast for Crow is I think the two course pals are too far away from each other, the ones that start on the board. I think if maybe they were uh, both 12 inches in or something, or 10 inches in rather than just six, because uh, the what ends up happening is um, I deploy just everything on one side and I ignore one course pile. The reason being is I know that gives my opponent one course pile for free or one objective for free, but then they're off over there and I can divide and conquer my opponent. Because imagine, you know, having, you know, one unit of your opponents just not there, not doing anything, and uh, I have the full force of my army fighting and I just make sure that I can get a fast unit to get the other objective first so that we're at least one at one and one at first, you know, with objectives at first. And then even if I lose a unit before he does, I get to place a course pile on that side of the board and uh, continually uh, isolate that one unit that's now sitting on this objective. Yes, I, again, I know that means my opponent's going to get this one free point every turn, but if I can uh, just start mopping up the rest of their force, that one point really is not going to matter as much as it sounds it does. Uh, like I said, I've had a lot of success doing this tactic with Feast for Crows, and that's why I think it would be a lot more, it would be a much different game mode uh, both the starting course pile objectives were closer together because you would be uh, you, it would be very hard to isolate a unit like that and be able to divide and conquer. Um, so with that said, um, you know having one of those really fast units that's a little more survivable, especially if you just have a fast faction, you know something that can move quickly. Uh, even Greyjoys with one Demir getting that three inch shift, uh, taking the free maneuver. Um, uh, anything of Swiss reposition, stuff like that uh, can get you that objective quickly. And if it's a strong and tough enough unit that you know that it's going to be able to weather an attack and keep that objective in Feast for Crows so you don't drop it if, you know, failed panic or have less ranks, um, you know, it's it can be completely game-changing. Like, you could really set the tempo right there. So... Um, for these missions, uh, I would say, again, um, I think morale is go-to if you know these missions are going to be there, even if one is going to be there, because morale is such a universally good thing. Um, so uh, for these missions, uh, definitely just keep that in mind, um, you know, because you can you can have one of, of your two lists be super morale-focused while still plenty of strengths and other things to be kind of like you were saying, Brett, more, you know, all comers. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it, it, you know, more of an all comers list. So, um, 
But uh, Brett, uh, what do you think uh, as we wrap up these two missions? Please, please tell me that I wasn't unmuted the whole time I was inside there. <laughs> no, uh, a guy said like one word and I muted you for you. Oh, okay, thank God. All right. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, again, for me, like, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. You can build, like, a high morale list. It's a good idea anyway, not just for these missions, but it's resisting some of the flayed men, some of the shenanigans that people pull with morale. That said, unfortunately, I find that against certain stuff, like if you're playing Targaryens and you're hoping to do chip damage with panic, you'll be kind of frustrated against high morale lists. The problem is when you're playing, like, Lannisters with flayed men when you're playing um, like a single dragon with Drogo blood riders there because of Warcry, And I don't want to make this a, everybody sit around and hate Warcry, but because of <laughs> Warcry, because Ruth commander is so, so, so good. And he has whispered threats because of all of the ways you can put out panic tokens, Asha in trappers puts out panic tokens. Um, right. She does panic and weakened, right? Uh, uh, Asha. Greyjoy trappers. Oh, Treffers, yes, they do. No, they do uh, the better tokens. They got uh, uh, Weakened and Vulnerable. Oh, I thought they did Panic. Okay, my apologies. That said, she still has Warcry, so she becomes really just a token machine. But there's so many ways to get Panic tokens out, and there's so many ways to increase the amount of modifiers on your Panic test, even if you're running Morale 5. Now, I've been running Targs a little bit, um, they're basically a morale five army. I still find myself taking panic tests on 10 or more. And when there's panic tokens, you're going to fail. So I'm not really sure other than like a man's bubble with stalwart, <laughs> what you really do <laughs> other than running dragons. But I think the panic in this game can be a little bit ridiculous. Um, so as far as selling out to anti-panic, I mean, you really need something like, berserkers who start taking less wounds from panic for it to be super meaningful because even if your morale is four or three you're going to fail panic um every single time i played a mountain that rides he dies to panic um he's a morale <laughs> four. it just it's just one hit from flayed men uh because of a war cry panic vulnerable token they get one wound through and then i take a panic test if i don't fail it initially i fail it on the reroll. boom intimidating presence mountain dead and it's <laughs> – so I don't know. I mean, it's up to you. You can run the high morale stuff, like I said. When you're not running against stuff that's a panic specialist, it's going to be frustrating for them, and you're not going to take that chip damage. But I've just found that in this meta, everybody leans so heavily into panic damage. Uh, you've got the Greyjoys with Silence Men now. Chris Tran was running this Ruth-led Greyjoy list that had Flayed Men and Ruth and a unit of Silence Men. And it was so ridiculous, the number of, like, negative five panic tests I was taking. Um, yeah, it was just crazy. Um, and that's what you're going to run into a lot in the meta. Lannisters, Free Folk, to some degree, Targaryens, when they've got Blood Riders throwing out panic tokens for dragons, um, things like this. It's just, it's, just it's, a, it's a rough world out there for panic. <laughs> so um, if you can get a commander on the corpse pile and piece, piece for crows currently while the commander's worth two points. We know that there's a change to commander scoring in some missions. They didn't specify which ones, but if that changes, I don't know. I would probably just 
almost ignore the mission because a lot of times what's going to happen is your opponent's going to wait until you activate your unit and have no response. They're going to come punch you, make you fail a panic test, take the damn token from you anyway. You might as well just go for blood. I don't really know. <laughs> That's my answer to everything, though, is just add a little bit more aggression to whatever aggression you have. All right, and we'll end the uh, end the, these two missions with a list that I have that I've had uh, quite a bit of success with. Um, it's uh, Warrior Sons led by uh, High Sparrow, uh, another Warrior Sons with Sandor Clegane. Um, I know I, I don't need that uh, House Clegane affiliation, but the Field by Slaughter and Warrior Sons is amazing. Um, then we got two poor fellows, each with uh, a champion of faith. Um, you know, after we just talked about how amazing Warcry is, uh, and then a crossbowman. So that makes up the five combat units. Um, and you could even take out the crossbowman if you have more of a preference for uh, um, Stormcrow archers or something. But I got the crossbowman in there just to keep it all um, Lannister. Uh, and then I actually run Jamie uh, Lannister, maimed hostage that extra VP when the unit dies or, uh, um, and making the, uh, when I have the crown, the opponent has minus one to hit. So I can throw that in one of their, uh, harder hitting, hitting units, um, and maybe tie them up with a poor fellow. Uh, Joffrey Baratheon and Pycelle are my two, uh, uh, MCUs. Um, obviously Joffrey in there to make sure that Jamie's always going off. All my cards are always going off. Um, and because my morale is so high on everything but the crossbowman, uh, I don't really care about that panic token that Joffrey gives out. And then Pycelle, constantly weakening, th weakening things, not being able to eat through my poor fellows fast enough, or my warrior sons with their pseudo-hardened uh, ability. I forget what it's called. But um, uh, So definitely uh, try that list out if, uh, if you're looking for like a list that's good with uh, morale. If you're a Lannister player, um, you know, High Sparrow is going to give that in Bolden. So uh, even though the Warrior Sons, you know, are a, a pretty good five up, um, that in Bolden is going to make them four ups. The poor fellows are going to go from four to three ups. Uh, you're going to have this list that uh, is not going to care about morale unless they got some high modifiers like you were mentioning uh, with uh, Chris uh, Trans, you know, minus five list, which I'm, uh, I have a very similar list with my, my gray, uh, gray So, um, but more often than not, uh, this list uh, will do uh, very well and you'll have that range unit to kind of poke, uh, poke at anyone who's sitting on these objectives that can't really run away. All right. So next up, we will talk about another two, um, similar-ish uh, missions, and that is Game of Thrones, and uh, I always mix this one's name up, so I'm going to double-check it, uh, Honed and Ready. So Honed and Ready and Game of Thrones both have five objectives that are always always worth one point, uh, and that's why I'm going to lump them together, whereas like there's other missions with five objectives, but those are like the secret mission ones. Um, but Game of Thrones and Honed and Ready, they have a 10-inch deployment with five objectives. Now, this one's definitely going to favor more activations, more presence on the board. Uh, it's going to, you know, they're different enough that you can't, it's, it's hard to build a list that's good for both of them. 
Um, reason being is like Game of Thrones is perfect for a mission where you have like a wolf or a marshal or something like a solo that's like four points, three points, um, and just sits on one of the corner objectives, and then you screen them with uh, with like your main units. Um, whereas you can't necessarily do that with uh, honed and ready because the walls will start shooting at you and you'll probably be dead in a turn or two. Um, especially because you can, with honed and ready, you can vulnerable your opponent and that vulnerable can be used when the arrows are shooting at you. Um, especially like we were just talking about uh, war cry. You know, if you constantly keep war crying the unit across from you with that uh, wall on them, uh, you know, you can get the unit pretty dead pretty quick. Um, so I would say... If you're looking for something, again, that's going to be uh, more middle of the road for these two missions, uh, you know, a nice uh, three-up save unit, really. Um, Lannister players out there, guardsmen, like a double guardsman, no attachment, you know, 10 points, two activations that just sit on these uh, back objectives. And, um, you know, your opponent, if they come at you, is uh, with the what has been... Um, talked about changing that we we discussed in another episode is that they're going to have to attack you like obviously they'll have to attack you on the turn they charge you but they won't be able to just like sit there and try to contest you they'll have to keep attacking into that Lannister, Lannister supremacy but even another great option is uh, Baratheon Wardens um, you know they still have that counter strike uh, maybe not as potent as uh, as the Lannister supremacy but um I think uh, Wardens are amazing in their own right. I absolutely love uh, running Baratheon Wardens, um, just stock, nothing in them, you know, cheap five-point unit. And this this allows you to kind of focus your attention uh, on that middle objective, which is where a lot of that fighting comes in. Um, a lot of people don't like these two missions for those reasons. A lot of people don't like Conan Ready because of the randomness of the walls shooting you. Um, I kind of see that. Like, I still like the mission personally, um, but it's definitely not like if I were to put them in a list of uh, or an order of which I like them, it's probably not high on that list. But Game of Thrones, a lot of people, um, you know, they don't really care for uh, Game of Thrones or Honed and Ready because once you're on those corner objectives, you're just kind of sitting there trading off points as you fight over the mill objective. Um, and I know that's a, like a simple way to kind of break it down because personally I still enjoy both missions um, and I've never really like had such a problem with that that like I complain like it's a big complaint it's just it's one of those you know it's just one of those realities it's one of the things that just kind of ends up happening especially when you're trying to play to the mission so I would say really for these two missions having two anchor units cheap anchor units, I would say like five points. You can maybe go to six points, but then you're really suffering on what else you're bringing. Um, And then, uh, uh, so like for Starks, let's say, uh, amazing unit to stick on there is um, totally sworn shields. Granted, again, you're you're looking at 12 points if you're running two of them. Um, But then you you run some uh, other stuff, and you just focus on that middle objective Um, it's not an easy mission to get like a crushing victory uh, a lot of the time because 
like I said, you have these two, your two units on your objective, your opponent has their two units on their objective, and so they're kind of trading off. And really, it's just what's dying in the middle on the middle objective and who has the middle objective that's really kind of determining the point differential. Uh, so um, amazing in this mission, um, or in both missions, really, but in, in Game of Thrones in particular, um, because, you know, they kind of go from once things start dying in the end you know they can kind of go from objective to objective pretty quickly um which is definitely a great uh, a bonus to have um range units uh, again great to have in this uh the corner objectives are close enough that if you have a range unit on your corner objective um you can start you know uh shooting away at them um just kind of getting some damage in there um especially with the walls shooting. I know the range unit's probably not going to have great defense, and they're probably going to start taking a lot from the, the walls as well, but if you can replace the zones for some more arrows, the game, uh, at the end of the turn, the arrows shooting them, and then if you have a range unit shooting the unit, um, you can really try to um, take out your opposing, uh, you know, the opposing unit um, pretty quickly. Um, what do you think, Brett? What's uh, what's your thoughts on these two missions? Um, I'm gonna apologize first of all. Amazon has me running around like crazy today. Um, not exactly peak season, but they've got a lot of stuff going on and they've got a lot of downed units. So I am driving. It's unfortunate you're gonna pick up some bad sound quality. Uh, this truck is kind of this truck is this truck is kind of a crap box. So it's it's pretty loud but that said i'm apologizing for that in advance but honed and ready is an interesting one it is a scenario that i personally like but the reason that i like it is probably different from the reason other people like it i like honed and ready because going back to 1.6 honed and ready was kind of like this anti cheesy meta-y kind of way of playing the game um you had units like dire wolves that were very, very good at sitting in the backfield and keeping objectives while four or five Stark units stormed you in the middle. Um, you're not really able to do that tone and ready, like you already mentioned, because of the walls. But it's not just that some of that has carried over to this 2021 version as well, because you still see a lot of the cheap, spammy kind of units. Um, I don't dislike the Stark Dire Wolves. I think they did a really, really nice job with redesigning them. They're at the best power level that they've ever been. They're a very good, strong unit, but they cost three points. They're very offensive. They're pretty squishy. They have no business sitting on an objective in Honed and Ready. But furthermore, I like Honed and Ready because it kind of punishes some of the meta choice of putting your commander in a four-point unit just to score the two objective points and basically outscore you before round four, and then the armies kind of started to fall apart at that point. But they've scored so many points from the mission that they've won the game. So in this mission, you, you, you'll you see things like uh, Tyrion and Poor Fellows. You'll see things like, um, you know, a, a Greyjoy commander and Trappers. You'll see Mance and Trappers or in Raiders. And they still like to put these kind of crappy units on the outside just to score points. But you've got the option to get rid of those units. And in, and in this mission, I strongly encourage, um, 
if you're playing out the mission. If they've got their commander in one of these poor defensive units, like the, the Trappers, the Raiders, the Poor Fellows, something like this, it's almost worth it starting in round two just to give up what you would want to normally do with the tactics board and just shoot the crap out of their commander. Um, I've had a lot of luck playing, in particular, against other Lannister commanders in this mission. And I just say, forget, you know, the free attack, forget the money bag, forget drawing cards. I'm just raining arrows every single chance I get onto this unit of poor fellows. And you can usually get them killed by round three if you commit to doing that. Sometimes, if the dice are friendly, you can, you can kill them at the end of round two. So if you get two or three, depending on which player went first, if you drop three arrow volleys on them and then the arrow volley at the end of the round, you might just kill them that round, and then you don't have to deal with their commander scoring two points anymore. The same can be said for commanders and trappers and things like this. It's almost worth it if you can get a grip on how you're playing the game or even just slow the game down a little bit. You know, don't aggressively go into the middle just yet sell out to getting rid of those units that are sitting on those walls. Really, really punish them for sitting on that objective if you can. Um, that said, this mission also doesn't really favor the Dothraki builds, which are really, really strong. Um, Dothraki screamers, outriders, uh, even veterans, they really don't want to sit on those outside objectives either. So um, you kind of force them to play really, really aggressively, and a lot of times that can work out in your favor. So I like Honed and Ready, but it's more or less because it's kind of an anti-meta mission, right? Um, it kind of punishes some of the more annoying meta choices. Um, Game of Thrones is always a good one, but unfortunately I've found in this meta, Game of Thrones can be really boring because it tends to be commanders sitting on an objective in the backfield, whatever unit you can muster sitting on another objective, and then it's a fight for the center. Whoever loses a unit in the middle first usually loses the game. It's kind of redundant. It's kind of boring. I don't love it. I know it's the staple mission for this game, but with the commanders scoring two victory points, it kind of, I think the, the game went in a direction that they didn't want it to go because there's no incentive to really fight. Um, my good friend Camille, he's a Lannister player, he often says how easy it is for Lannisters to beat a unit uh, or an army like Baratheons in Game of Thrones without ever even making a single attack. And he's right. And it's, it's kind of boring for me. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think I would agree with that. Um, I think more so for tournaments uh, is where you'll see that because, um, you know, you're playing the mission. And, it, you know, you can't really blame someone for playing the mission, um, if, especially in a tournament. Uh, and it can definitely, depending on the list builds, can definitely get pretty boring, especially if uh, I've seen it happen where um, you have uh, two... Um, two lists where it's four units and three NCUs. And, you know, you have two units. It's literally just two of each of your units fighting in the middle while the other two are sitting on objectives. And then you have your fighting over the tactics board with, you know, six NCUs. So um, so I definitely can see that. And I've, I've had it happen a handful of times myself. Um, but for these missions, um, 
again, uh, more uh, like two anchor units. If we're talking something that's going to work for both um, anchor units, I mean, if you know for a fact that you're going to play um, Honed and Ready, uh, or sorry, Game of Thrones and not Honed and Ready, you can maybe get away with uh, some like the solo units to sit on these objectives. Um, but it's definitely a lot, I feel like it's a lot more dangerous than it was before. Um, the solo units are definitely a lot more vulnerable, I believe, to um, a lot of different things, and you're actually paying for the points, like you were mentioning, Brett, you know, wolves being three points now rather than just being, like, free, um, you know, you can't really just throw them away the way you used to because not as only is it a three-point investment per wolf, it's still a victory point. Um, so uh, I would say... Um, which we call it uh, two two like anchor units, and then a bunch of more like offensive units to try to get up into that middle objective. Like you were saying, you're a lot of times it just comes down to um, who can survive the arrows better, and who uh, who can take that center objective. Um, I have one. If you don't, but uh, did you have like a, a a list that you like for uh, these missions, Brett? That you wanted uh, shout out. Um, yeah, I mean, again, um, I'm currently, my current list pairing of choice, I guess, when I play Lannisters is, uh, I've got the Ruthless, that's hyper-aggressive, it's Ruth and Guardsmen, two units of Flavemen, four fellows of Champion of Faith, Tywin NCU, Tycho, High Sparrow. Um, this, I mean, I would maybe consider deploying it, um, in Game of Thrones. Because again, that that the list is really just designed to be tanky, to be grindy, to have tons of healing, and it's focused on getting rid of one of their units, one of their anchor units, one of their units that's really tough to deal with, and that's where Tywin NCU comes in. Um, Tywin NCU sets up so many scary defensive units for a one shot. Um, I'm talking Unsullied Pikeman with Unsullied Officer. You give them the four hits. You give them the panic vulnerable token. You charge them with Slademen. There's a very good chance that they're just going to pop. If you've got to hear me roar, I'd say it's a pretty darn good chance. They'd have to be – I mean, I think they would have to roll pretty well to survive that. Um, and even if they don't survive, you've probably knocked their ranks down enough that a follow-up tax should get rid of them because Shield Wall should only be blocking one hit. But the way I see it is – if you've got Warcry on your hand, the Tywin four hits should do two wounds, re-roll the two successes with the vulnerable token, that should be three. You Warcry, put the tokens right back on. Whether you panic them or something else is kind of up to you. And then the Flayed Men charging in, I think, with critical blows, should average seven hits or so. And so a vulnerable on that's going to get you about five more wounds. And then if you've got to hear me roar with that panic token, they're taking D3 plus two, and it's going to be like a minus five. Uh, mathematically, they should pop. So that's the reasoning behind that Bruce and Tywin list. Um, you've also got the ability to block Tycho with Slademan Has No Secrets. But probably more often than not, I would deploy the Tyrion list for the reasons that I just mentioned. Again, I'm speaking from a competitive point of view. Um, the Tyrion list is just boring, and it's designed to play the game in the boring way, but unfortunately that's what wins games right now. Uh, it's Tyrion and a unit of poor fellows, two more units of poor fellows, 
Warrior Sons are the champion of the faith, Blade Men, uh, High Sparrow, Tycho, and Pythel. It's just very basic, boring. You've got two, two poor fellows that can sit on the outside. Preferably you put Tyrion on the outside, but if you escort Tyrion up the middle with Warrior Sons with Champion of Faith and Blademan, he can definitely contest the center. And if you've got two poor fellows on the outside and that much presence in the middle, it's going to be really hard to overcome. Um, you can really do a lot of body blocking with Tyrion because of his shift, and you've got the High Sparrow to kind of heal those um, flayed men on demand. You've got the High Sparrow, Fealty to the Crown, the Panic Token set up by the Warrior Sons. Um, it can get pretty difficult to push anything out of the middle with the amount of healing that's in that list. Um, so th- that's my that's my current favorite list pairing. I've been dabbing in Targaryens a little bit. Um, I think ultimately my Drogo list is too vulnerable to Lannisters with Tywin NCU. And I haven't done a good job thus far of designing a second list to play uh, against Lannisters and, and other things that Drogo can't handle. So I can't really speak on a good Targaryen pairing. And those are kind of the two factions that I'm playing around with right now. But I feel very confident in my Lannister pairing for the most part. And uh, for some of you uh, non-Lannister players out there, I do have one list uh, I'll I'll throw out there. Um, It definitely could be better. Uh, but this list, uh, I really wanted to kind of prove to people how good uh, Thornwatch can be. Um, I don't think there's some, like, game-changing unit. Uh, they're, in my opinion, clearly nowhere near as good as Ranger Hunters, uh, just because Ranger Hunters are just, you know, they're almost like the the golden standard. Uh, I wouldn't say golden standard, but they're like the, like the best seven-point unit out there. Um, but uh but this list uh I think Thornwatch uh could really uh do some damage, especially in this mission or in these missions. Um so it's got two wardens, you know, uh the two anchor units I had been mentioning, you know, you sit on the, the corner objectives on your side. Um, especially in honed and ready, you know, that three up armor is really gonna prevent them from really taking a lot of damage throughout the the mission. Um, you have a unit of Rose Knights with a Thornwatch Sentinel. Uh, I know it's a hefty eight-point unit, but giving them that Dauntless back, uh, you know, and it gives them, you know, the Pathfinder, which is always nice, you know, uh, because they do have a, a nice seven dice hitting on threes, so you can charge right through, like, a corpse pile or something and uh, not have to worry about losing your rerolls. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the Deadly Bloom, um, Pres- uh, preservation, preser- preservance and valor, and dauntless combo going on with the dealing wounds, healing wounds. Um, then uh, got some Brathian Sentinels with Bronn. Uh, I think uh, one of my favorite combos for Brathians, and that's just because I think Bra- uh, Sentinels have so much potential. But I think where a lot of people end up finding that they're a little lackluster is just that four up armor and six up morale is just average um but with brawn in there if you have that wealth uh, zone you're looking at a three up defense and a five up morale and now they're pretty tanky um uh and 
Bron giving him motivated by coin allows you to get a bunch of extra attacks with these guys, not only possibly from Sentinel order uh, getting a free charge. You know, you could get that free charge from Sentinel order um, after, let's say, your opponent took the free attack to hit you. You get that charge in there uh, for free, attack that attack them and then take the wealth immediately as your activation and replace it with brawn and now you've swung twice with these sentinels uh, and they still haven't activated yet um, and then lastly is Thornwatch with uh, Renly Baratheon the Chris, uh, charismatic heir um, for that uh, combo there I think this is definitely the best, uh, best uh, way to run the Thornwatch because Brathian, or sorry, Renly Brathian is going to give that boldness and courage and embolden. So these Thornwatch are going to go up to a five-up morale, and then uh, you're going to have your short bow or what's it called, Watcher's crossbow, uh, be a seven-six-six, uh, which is a pretty uh, awesome profile. Um, and then their longsword is going to be an eight-seven-five. Uh, you know, and between the embolden making him a five-up morale, and then having that regroup, uh, which you can combo with a swift strike uh, to heal, um, you're gonna uh, find that the Thornwatch are definitely gonna be hitting pretty good at their at their weight class. The thing though is, like, I feel like Thornwatch are in a lot of cases are going to be more of like a commander bunker uh, because investing more points into them is gonna be hard to justify. But I think uh, the charismatic air in them will be amazing. Uh, and then to round off the list uh, at seven activations total is Courtney Penrose and Tycho. So um, Rose Knights are going to be healing through their shenanigans. You're going to have uh, the Thorn Watch healing from their um, uh, regroup uh, ability. And then you're going to also have Tycho for that clutch uh, healing. And then Courtney... Um, I know a lot of times people will just opt to not do anything to avoid Courtney, but he still does provide potential healing. Um, so uh, definitely try this list out um, if you're looking for a list that uh, would have a pretty good shot at um, Game of Thrones and or Honed and Ready. Um, having the Thorn Watch, the Rose Knight, and the um, Sentinels, uh, especially with the combos they have going on there. Uh, all three of those fighting over the center objective is really going to give your opponent a headache. Uh, so definitely uh, keep this list in mind. Um, and uh, I'll see if I can have Brett send me his list, and then I'll maybe make a post on our page. So definitely go check us out on Facebook, and there will be a post with uh, like a screenshot of all of the lists that we uh, suggest uh, today. All right. With that said, we'll move on. Let me just uh, pull up the missions again here. Um, so next ones we'll talk about are the two secret mission uh, missions. Um, and that's the ones that use the secret mission deck. And um, that would be Winds of Winter and Dark Wings, Dark Words. So these ones, uh, these ones are definitely a bit more tricky to, um, uh, to like, kind of tailor a list for. Um, so I'll start off with Winds of Winter because this is uh, probably my favorite game mode. It kind of goes between this and Clash of Kings. Um, but whereas, let's say, Dark Wings, Dark Words, for me, is personally, I think, my least favorite. Um, but uh, Winds of Winter, you know, you 
you start the you know uh, you start the game with the mission cards eleven and twelve, and then you pick four additional. So it provides a level of flexibility that you're able to pick the mission cards that you're able to most likely get. Um, so uh, I'll kind of talk a little tactics for this mission uh, that I like to do. So I've found out that um, certain mission cards you can rely on, like to at least get some points, and some um, are more to just kind of hinder your opponent. And uh, But they're not guaranteed. Like it give, It's almost like Mance, Commander. It gives your opponent an out, uh, which is something that is definitely nice, but you don't want to overload. So like when I f- was playing this mission, I would run, I would take the objective that if someone took the sword or the horse, uh, you got a point. And the other one where if someone took the sword, the letter, you got a point. And then I'd take the one where whoever takes a spot first on the board gives a point. Um, Those are all great missions um, and great game design by, you know, uh, Michael and them. But if you're talking about wanting to make sure that you have a way to get points, personally, I say take only one of those three as your four options. Uh, And the reason being is having one of those is actually pretty key um, to kind of messing up your opponent. You don't want to run a bunch because if you run all three of them, um, you have to play technically two of them because you'll have six cards and you only play five of them throughout the course of the game. But a bunch of uh, ability to opt out of giving you points is pretty big. And I've also seen it where my opponent runs all of them and they eventually trip themselves up and have to end up taking one of the spots that gives me a point off their own objective um, because either player can score for those. So I would say pick one. Personally, I would pick the either the attack and maneuver or the attack and letter uh, based on who you're facing. If they want the maneuver more or they want the letter more um, is which one I pick of the two. Whoever uh, takes a spot first, that one I don't really like um, anymore. I just, I've found that uh, it causes both players to just never take a spot uh, or it ends up hurting me more than my opponent. Uh, So I just don't take that one of the three. Uh, And then from there is where you kind of have to um, figure out what your list is is good for. Um, These two missions are hard to plan for, so this is where a lot more more than any other missions, in my opinion, building an all-comer list is actually going to help you because the all-comer lists are going to give you more ability to uh, uh, trigger these objectives. Um, Now I'll read the objectives real quick. without taking up too much time. So you have uh, score two points for the center objective. Uh, You have the three that I already mentioned. Um, You have one that if you destroy the enemy commander, get two points. If your commander was destroyed, it's an additional point. Uh, So three points uh, total if you meet those criteria. Um, At the end of the round, if you have at least one unengaged friendly unit in the deployment zone, two points. Uh, At the end of each round, or sorry, at the end of uh, the round, for each enemy uh, your units are engaged with that has fewer remaining ranks, uh, score one point, up to two points. 
At the end of the round, you may expend two condition tokens uh, from each combat unit. Score one point for every time you, uh, for each one you do, up to two. Uh, once this round, when an enemy destroys a friendly combat unit, place two points on that unit. Remove and score these points when the enemy is destroyed. At the end of the round, for each objective you control, uh, you get one. Or uh, sorry, at the end of the round, for each objective you control on your opponent's side of the battlefield, score one point. And when you reveal this mission, if you have less than your opponent, you score one to become first player. That one's automatic with Winds of Winter. And then at the end of the round, for each objective you control, score one, and that one's automatic. Um, so personally, uh, it comes down to a lot of things. So the one where you score points for expending tokens, uh, that's perfect for a Lannister list that has two war cries. That that mission's almost like guaranteed to happen. Now, if you don't have a good way to generate tokens, uh, I would just ignore this one outright because barely generating tokens, it's going to be hard to trigger this one. And a lot of times you're going to want to use those tokens and you have no like way to generate a ton of them. Um, getting in the opponent's backfield uh, in their deployment, sorry, uh, for two points, that one's amazing. Um, it, unless you're running a really slow army. Now, uh, if you have any sort of outflank or um, just cavalry unit, uh, this one I absolutely love, uh, you know, because if you've already looked or if you've already noticed a trend is that other than the one condition of the commander one, uh, the most you can get with these, uh, with pretty much all of these is two points. Um, or, you know, the one that you can score one for every objective. But... Um, so you want to ask yourself, what uh, my chance? What's the best chances that I'm going to guarantee myself two points? Um, in a lot of cases, that's the center objective one. I almost always take that one just because it's two points. It's in the center. You're already probably fighting in the center, so I'll take that one. I'll take one of the ones that messes up my opponent on the NCU board. Uh, I'll take the condition token one if I have an abundance of ways to give out condition tokens. Um, the one I never take uh, is um, is uh, one point for each of the objectives on your opponent's side of the board. The reason being for this one is that uh, being on your opponent's side of the board is already hard enough, um, but you also have to control the objective, and then you ask yourself, what, how likely is it that you're going to control both, um, giving you two points, whereas a lot of these other missions uh, will already give you two points just for doing it. For example, being in the enemy deployment zone, giving you two points, that's ridiculously easier than controlling both of the objectives on your opponent's side of the board in which you're basically already next to the deployment anyways. Um, so with that said... Uh, you know, another one to keep in mind, if you're a cavalry list, don't run the one where your opponent, it's based on uh, ranks. You score if you have more ranks for every unit. Um, obviously, you're already inherently behind in that regard, uh, and it's all, it's pretty hard to uh, be more ranks, you know, because even after you charge an infantry with a cavalry, a lot of times you'll just not come down to that second rank, um, and now you're, you're still not scoring it. Um, so... Whereas, let's say you have a way to heal a lot, like Greyjoys. I love this mission because uh, all my stuff is pretty much three ranks, and I heal so much that I can almost guarantee to 
last minute heal things up and score this one. Um, said like this one again it's hard to tell you certain units and certain uh, um, things to tailor for these two missions it's um, it's more about building an all comer something that's just very well balanced and then being smart about picking or at least for winds of winter uh, picking the objectives that best suit your uh, faction uh, and not you know, putting all your eggs into one basket, so to speak, like with the tactics board uh, objectives. Um, because, like I said, if you're running um, all those and your opponent just decides to ignore those zones or on the round where you do it or whoever picks first or does it against you first, they could just outweigh you to where... Um, you know, you both have to just pass all your NCUs and your opponent can then focus on his missions, getting his ones that suit him while your, you know, your opponent's also avoiding giving you any. Um, Darkwing, Dark Worms, that one's a bit more uh, in-depth. There's, you know, a whole mechanic with swapping the missions out. Um, personally, this the reason I don't like this one the most out of all the missions is because there's too many ways to score. Obviously, they're taking away possibly the commander for this one, the commander bonus, but as it stands, it's um, one point for every objective. It's point for every unit you kill. It's an additional point if your commander's on an objective, and you still score for all the mission deck cards. So, like, I don't think I've ever had a, a game go past round three because there's just so many ways to score in this mission. Um so I don't know if, like, objectives were meant to be able to be scored. I mean, I guess at this point nothing's ever been said, so I'm assuming that as is is, meant, is how it was meant. But it's just so easy to score in this mission uh, that, you know, round it's like round three, okay, game's over. Um, anyways, um, again, though, this one, because it's using those mission cards, um, it's that's kind of like the the deciding factor because you can score all these other ways with um, the objectives. Uh, it kind of gives you a little more uh, freedom to try to tailor to the list. But then again, I mean, the objectives don't move, um, and they're all in the middle. There's three of them. So you can't really run like that tanky unit uh, combo like you would in um, Game of Thrones. So, um, yeah, so I guess... Uh, kind of rehash, you know, an all-comer list is definitely um, easily the best for these two missions. Um, I mean, you kind of want all-comer lists anyways, like for tournaments, um, you know, because more often than not, you don't really know what missions you're going to get. Um, or you'll have, like I said, a pool of missions, and you still don't, like, nothing's guaranteed. Uh, and these... Uh, so having an all-comer list will just kind of that would I would say the best of your all-comer lists of the two lists is probably what you'd want to run for these two. Obviously, you know you'd have to factor what your opponent's running. But um, Brett, what do you think about these two missions? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the big key is knowing which secret missions are going to best suit you calculating the risk of your opponent being able to also score off of them. Um, and you've, I don't know. I feel like it's 
playing this one, it's kind of an evolving situation. Um, you know, you might pick a mission thinking that it's going to work out for you and then the state of the game changes and then it doesn't. It kind of comes down to when you play the missions that you've selected, what you select, um, you know, and then thinking about what your opponent's doing as well. For example, if you think that you can get into their deployment, but they're running something like Targaryens uh, with Dothraki, you might not want to deploy that mission unless you feel really sure that they're not going to score it as well. Because the thing is, if, if they're scoring off of your mission, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. I think the ultimate goal is to get missions that you can score off of that they're unlikely to be able to score off of. Um, the point at which they're scoring off of your stuff, you've kind of put yourself on your back foot. Um, and I think overall, I like the idea behind the whole steal the first player. Uh, you know, if you're losing, you score a victory point, you become first player. The problem with that one can be that your opponent can deliberately make himself behind and steal that first player turn tempo at a really crucial time. Um, it's particularly easy to do uh, if they've played a mission like if your opponent claims his own on the board before you do score a point and they don't think that um, they're going to be killing a unit that round or something to score a point, then they just claim the zone anyway, go down one to zero, and then you don't necessarily have anything that you can do about that, and then they're losing one to zero and they steal your first place. So it's something that I've seen happen. But overall... I just like – I like these missions. Um, they're fun. They're interesting. They can be pretty interactive. I think they've done a really nice job, like you mentioned, of redesigning the secret missions all around. And I think they've done a pretty good job of giving each player as much control as possible. You've got ability – you've got ways to swap the, the missions out in one of the missions, and then you hand-select your own missions in the other. I think it's really cool. I really like it. Um, sorry, it's bumpy. I know secret missions still kind of catch a lot of hate because players feel like it's kind of out of their control and they don't necessarily like it, but yeah. I enjoy it. Uh, it's a nice change of pace. It makes you play the game a little bit differently, and... I think it's pretty rewarding. I enjoy them. I haven't played a Secret Missions game yet that wasn't fun for me. So. All right. And uh, like I said, like an all-comer list is probably best for these two missions. So I'll kind of just throw out one of my um, best performing lists uh, for Greyjoys. Um, we got uh, Reavers with uh, Victorian Commander. Reavers with Newt, Reavers with Asha and Carl, uh, one, each one-pointers, um, Reavers with Jacken, uh, Bowman, we got Eric Wendemir and uh, Roderick Harlaw. Um, you know, looking at five combat units, three NCUs, you know, it's eight activations, which is, I would say, like, higher tournament level. That's about, like, your average. But I would say more, like, local level. You know, you're going to see more, like, seven activations. So uh, this will get, this list will give you um, kind of an edge there. Uh, Jacken is great because uh, 
you know, you have so many of your own attachments, not to mention you have a Carl with expert duelist to kind of kill something and use Jack and to overtake it. Um, but, uh, I found that this list is, you know, it's good for pretty much everything. Um, you know, so, and you got that war cry in there. So, um, you'll be able to kind of set up your, uh, um, mission where, uh, if you have two, um, on a unit, you can expend it and get a victory point. Obviously, with only one war cry, you're going to have to kind of, like I said, set it up. So you're going to have to spend a couple rounds, maybe even three, depending on if your opponent's able to heal some of them. Um, but, you know, you just you save that mission towards the end of the game for like a last-minute two victory points your opponent wasn't expecting. So, um, yeah, uh, not only that, but Victorian and Newt both have uh, Furious Charge, so... Um, they can give out some vulnerables. The tactics deck gives out some uh, vulnerables and other tokens. So um, between uh, what's that? Uh, finger dance. Um, let's see here. Finger dance gives out uh, vulnerables. Uh, we got uh, Kraken's wrath that can give out uh, vulnerable or panic depending on who has wealth. Uh, and then I want to say that's it. But still. Um, still a great way to get a bunch of panic tokens out there. Um, all right, so next up we have, uh, let's see what we have not talked about yet. So we haven't done Clash. Uh, let's see, Clash, Here We Stand, Fire and Blood, those three. So those ones are all different enough that we'll just kind of talk about them individually. We'll go with Clash Kings first. Um, this one, I mean, this one's pretty self-explanatory. You just, you need a, a very good uh, commander unit. Um, as I was mentioning before, it kind of goes back back and forth between this mission and Winds of Winter as my favorite mission to play. Uh, Clash of Kings, um, for those that uh, don't know, uh, has a special rule that when your commander dies, uh, can be redeployed, um, uh, unactivated, uh, either on a flank edge or your, um, uh, deployment zone. So, and that's huge, uh, being, you know, being able to do that, uh, with some, uh, with some commanders in some units can be devastating. Uh, it can be game changing. Um, uh, for example, uh, John Snow in Ranger Hunters, or you know, an abundance of commanders in Bastard Girls. Being able to jump on the board unactivated and then have the ability to uh, shoot, charge, or charge, retreat, shoot—all uh, these different like combos. Especially if you're going to be in the rear and going first, uh, you know, can be completely game-changing. Um, so I would say simply this this mission, the simple way to put it is have one of your missions have an amazing, uh, you know, your commander like an amazing combo unit. Um, even like Drogo and Blood Riders, uh, you know, um, Expert Duelist is amazing in this mission. Uh, that list I had just mentioned um, is ama- uh, with Greyjoys is amazing for this. I actually was able to um, get my commander uh, uh, my commander got one-shotted. Uh, Victorian and Reavers got one-shotted by Flademan, 
uh, just one charge and they exploded. And I could have done what is dead made of or die, but I let them actually die because um, I was able to turn Jack in into my commander, have him set an objective, and then my Victorian came back on the board with uh, the Reavers and unactivated was able then to start wreaking havoc uh, and killing things. And now, I, and then I had two commanders on objectives, um, which is something they've pointed out in the uh, FAQ. So that is like a legit thing that you can do. And then, like I said, with uh, with Carl with or with an expert duelist, uh, it, it kind of also helps that out too. Because the one thing you don't want with this mission, and I've seen it happen a handful of times now in person is running your commander in a very defensive unit uh, that has no, like little to no offensive potential. Uh, I've seen Roos and Blackguard uh, get expert duelist and die, and then the Blackguard never die because they're just too defensive, and now you can't take it. Now your commander is dead, and you can't take, you can't take advantage of the unit constantly coming back, and now the commander is gone for the entirety of the game because he has to return with his unit, uh, and the unit's just not dying. Um, so I would say because Expert Duelist can be so, you know, it's all over the place, it seems like now, um, I would avoid running like a super tanky uh, commander unless um, he has a lot of offensive potential. Uh, for example, Drogo and Blood Riders, not only does he have Expert Duelist, but he ha he's in an amazingly defensive uh, uh, unit with the Blood Riders. Um, they're able to zip around the board, and then if somehow you do kill them, because um, they are super offensive, they can come back. So uh, what's your thoughts, Brett? Yeah, I mean, you basically nailed the gist of it. You, This is a case where it pays to have aggressive commanders. Um, if you're running Lannisters, this is a nice mission to bring Gregor. Um, Victorian's a really good one. Um, additionally, I don't know if you said it or not, but you're getting an additional point when your commander kills the unit. Um, and the first time the enemy commander dies, you get two victory points. So... Uh, it's pretty big. It's pretty nice. This is a very nice Drogo mission. Um, Drogo and Blood Riders definitely capable of getting some kills. Uh, Drogo can go just kill their commander out of the unit. Um, I want to look to make sure I'm not talking wrong, but I believe you just have to kill the commander, not necessarily the commander's unit. First time the enemy commander is destroyed, yeah. So Drogo can go snipe the commander out, score two points. And then, as you mentioned, if it's a defensive unit, you don't want to put the resources into it. He can dip out and then go start killing other stuff and really rack the points up very quickly. Um, I played this mission against Free Folk. Um, he had Tormund and Spearwives. I was unfortunately able to place Tormund behind me. He got a kill. But I killed Tormund, and so that was three points because I killed Spearwives as well. And then I think Drogo killed two or three units on his own. So that got me like six points, and it kind of put the mission away for the most part. So it can definitely pay to have a very aggressive commander that can go out and get those kills. Um, do you tailor builds just for it? I don't know. I think Gregor's a pretty good commander in general. I think Vic is pretty good in general. Um, 
I think Targaryens probably have it the best because you're probably running Drogo anyway, uh, no matter what. So it's not like you're picking Drogo just because this mission comes up. You're picking Drogo because he's debatably their best commander. So I think overall he's probably the big winner. Maybe Tormund. I think I see a lot of pairings of Tormund and Man. So however you look at that, they're probably the two big winners for this scenario because you're going to run them anyway. And if it comes up, then, hey, you're super happy. But um, that said, I, I think you've just pretty much nailed everything else. There can definitely be some shenanigans with uh, commanders dying and, and Jacken copying them. Um, I know the Renly side has some ways to really generate the commander multiple times, but it's kind of gimmicky. It could be cool. It could come up. It could be important, but I don't know. Probably not worth building a whole list around. Yeah, I, this is one of those missions where it's just going to really come down to if you just, you know, already have one of your two lists be, uh, you know, have a commander in a very offensive unit, which I would suggest people to start doing a lot more now um, with the rumors or it, for the most part it's confirmed, but I'm assuming it's every mission um, commanders will no longer give uh, an extra victory point. I'm assuming that it's probably just every single mission that says, oh, your commander gives one more victory point is the only thing that's changing. So like the other commander buffs will all stay the same. Um, but uh, with that said, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot more incentive to just kind of get your commander up in the mix, um, you know, with the exception of, like, just a very few of them, you know, for, uh, let's say, Courtney, uh, Penrose commander, gives the, I think it's called bookkeeping, where you get one extra tactics card uh, hand size while he's alive. Um, I grant in this one he's never going to fully be dead. But, um, so, uh, with that said, um, we'll end uh, this mission, and I'll give uh, my John Snow list. I know it's Night's Watch. I know it's Jon Snow. Um, but we do still have some um, dedicated uh, Night's Watch players out there. And I kind of want to throw some examples of, uh, of each faction out there. So we got some Ranger Hunters with Jon Snow. Got some Ranger Hunters with a Recruiter. Some cons- two Conscripts, each with a Recruiter. You got uh, Builder Crossbowmen, um, Amon, and Tycho. So... The idea behind the list is that you have an insane amount of healing. Uh, all these recruiters are going to heal at least uh, one, uh, two if you control the crown when the when the unit activates. Um, Jon Snow has a rally cry, so he's going to heal two every time he does a melee attack to someone uh, to another unit within long. He got those crossbowmen uh, just kind of shooting into combat. Two ranger hunters, which is you know short range, but you know you still have three ranged units throughout your force. Amon and Tycho providing a ton of healing there, uh, and then John's cards and um, you know almost nothing's ever going to die. And then because uh, John will have that such a nasty combo when he comes back to life, you could really just kind of throw him at whatever and just try to do the most damage and even then when he like I said when he dies uh, you know um, he's going to come back uh, and be able to then 
kill something. So, like, you know, the first time the commander dies, you get two points. But let's say you just throw them at something, completely, uh, you know, one-two punch uh, some smaller unit, you get an extra point there because your commander did it. Then when your commander comes back to life and you go first that round and you go, like, behind a unit, you can then make up that extra point from when John died uh, by, again, having John kill, you know, like rear charge something and then uh, retreat and shoot him uh, and, you know, destroy him that way too. So not that I really need to, like, give you guys uh, Night's Watch, uh, you know, advice, you know, because they're so strong. But, um, again, I kind of wanted to just throw out – some lists for every faction because there are some people out there that Night's Watch is the only faction they play and uh, you know s- some of them are having a bit of a harder time uh, building lists than other people. Um, all right, next uh, mission we got two hang left. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I got I got to stop you for a second. I, I, no, I stopped no, what I'm, I'm gonna, doing. I'm, I'm gonna mute actually... you. You're muted. Sorry. No. No, no, no. Can you <laughs> unmute me? <laughs> No, you're good. I didn't mute you. <laughs> okay. Stop. You're not funny. But no, I'm I'm actually working on something, so I'll let you take the lead on the next one. But but before you move on, I have to say something because it's something that's been bothering me anyway, and I'm not going – I've been being a lot nicer, but I'm not going to resist the opportunity to say something here. Um, this is for you and for everybody in general. You you have to stop apologizing for playing Night's Watch. The reason I say that is I'm not saying overall and for 100%, but I'm saying that in a lot of ways the the players, the meta, did not have any patience to really sort out how to beat Night's Watch, to really figure it out. They kind of just got super frustrated and just started hating Night's Watch making every person who plays Night's Watch feel guilty, making blowing up this big thing like Night's Watch is this super unbeatable faction. And if you run Night's Watch, you're just a terrible person, and I'm really kind of just fed up with it because you don't hear Targaryen players apologizing for abusing Blood Riders right now. You don't hear Targaryen players apologizing for running MOD and winning by tabling so many games. You don't hear Free Folk players apologizing for slam dunking you with Spearwives that one-shot eight, nine, ten-point units. You don't hear Greyjoy players apologizing for running Blind Baron right now with Silencemen and having this unkillable, basically, unit that's just sitting there creating this big bubble of negative two, and they're shooting the crap out of you with archers. I'm sorry. You don't hear them apologizing. I'm not going to apologize as a Night's Watch player, and no Night's Watch player should apologize, even if they're running awful. There are plenty of answers to Night's Watch that existed before, and with some of these new releases, definitely exist now. There's no reason to keep apologizing and feeling bad because you're running a faction that you like. It really irritates me. It really aggravates me. I haven't been playing Night's Watch. That's because I've been having fun with Lannisters and Targaryens. But if I run Night's Watch, I'm not going to apologize for it because there are plenty of other things in the game that slam dunk just as hard as Night's Watch does. And you just shouldn't feel bad. And people should stop feeling like 
they need to apologize or, or have a disclaimer. Well, you won this event, but you ran Nightwatch. Who cares? Who cares? There's not any other faction that's apologizing routinely, and it's just not fair for Nightwatch players. They bought it. They should be able to play them without feeling bad. There are solutions. There are answers to them. <laughs> I mean, we've offered solutions. I know Craig and I did a podcast talking about how Targaryen with Blood Riders are definitely capable of beating the double crossbows, the double ranger hunters and stuff like this. It just really irks me. And I'm, I'm not picking on you, but I just really hate seeing people always apologizing for bringing Nightwatch because there's plenty of other powerful stuff out there that nobody's sorry about running. Yeah, I definitely can see that. Um, and it is one of those things that, uh, you know, nice watch players shouldn't have to do, uh, especially now that, you know, enough things have been kind of released. You know, they've been out for a while now. Uh, a lot more, ant- like, in my opinion, there's definitely a lot less uh, problems than when, you know, the first initial, like, shock uh, of them came out, um, you know, whereas before I felt like it was the whole faction. Now I feel like it's just, I don't know, handful, we'll, we'll say a handful of things without, like, throwing out a specific number. Um, and, you know, that is a definitely a great point that, you know, you shouldn't have to apologize for running um, things uh, that you have access to. Uh, and that's, you know, that's actually a topic we had uh, um, at the last Gamers Haven um, tournament that I went to, um, is that, you know, am I not very excited to see Nightwatch or Targaryens or some, like a certain something across the board? Yes, but I will never, never uh, be mad at the person for running it if it's legal and it's something within their arsenal uh, of their faction, uh, especially for like a tournament. You know, if it's at your disposal, do not ever give someone crap for running it. Um, uh, really, at any at, at you know casually or competitively, but um, more so competitively, like in a tournament. You know, uh, it's not like if you really do have a problem with a certain unit in any faction uh, or a certain, like, build of some kind, uh, it's not the player's fault that they have, you know, at where at what point do we draw the line, you know? At, at what point do we say, well, you know, this should be banned, but that shouldn't um, because, you know, it, at that point it's all, you know, experience, it's all preference. Uh, who thinks what is more broken or overpowered or whatever, you know, words you want to use, um, you know, because there's probably some Nightwatch players out there that are just having, you know, an, uh, you know, middle of the road uh, experience. Like what I mean by that is, you know, they're winning just as many as they're losing. And so they, you know, they don't see Nightwatch as a problem, but they might face Targaryens and think Targaryens are a problem. And then, you, like I said, where do you draw the line? Where do you, stop at what should be banned should not be socially acceptable to run. Um, and that's why I think, you know, obviously if you have like an idea that something's a bit too strong, maybe try to, you know, uh, if you're just truly playing a straight up casual game, try to avoid those things. You know, it, it just kind of 
a little a lot more fun for just the general atmosphere but um like competitively or like competitively casually like if you're testing for a tournament um you know you shouldn't uh feel bad for running anything um you know because every faction has that you know handful of things that are just like how do you deal with that um and that's kind of you know that kind of brings you know us to like it's 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 like a swiss army knife with this game that everything in the game has an answer um of some sort somewhere but the question is are you running it um and not every faction has an answer for everything so um let's say it's an amazingly powerful ncu well if you're like baratheon and you're fortunate enough to be able to take Elena and you can constantly shut off that amazingly powerful NCU, then okay. Um, or, you know, uh, other things that have like the more control aspect uh, to shut off like order, tax cards, uh, abilities, things like that. Um, you know, and if there's a very specific thing that you play that is super strong uh, and you know, you can even, you know, take your, you know, I would never say, like, tailor to someone if you know for a fact they're going to run that list. But let's say they run it a lot and you're just going to roll the dice and take a chance and tailor to that list not knowing if they're going to run it and they just happen to run it, then that's just, in my opinion, that's just, uh, you know, it's part of the list building. You know, you took that chance, you know, they could have not ran it. Um, I would just say don't tailor to something you know someone's going to run for sure but uh but yeah to get back to my point is that if you're having trouble like a really hard time with a certain list just uh you know build a list tailored to beat it and uh you know you'll you'll find that there's a lot less quote-unquote broken or overpowered things uh in this game um but yeah definitely don't ever you know and you know obviously uh you know, I'm apologizing, uh, you know, or, you know, mentioning that about Night's Watch or things that I think are too strong. Um, but with that said, uh, you know, one of my uh, most common opponents is Night's Watch. And, you know, I never tell them not to run to Night's Watch. I never tell them to not run a certain commander or this or that. Because, you know, as, you know, kind of ranting about now is that, you know, if it's within their arsenal, you know, it's fair game. I mean, uh, uh, you can always make a request, I suppose, but again, where do you draw that line? Um, that's why I've never like requested, uh, anyone not run a certain faction, a certain unit commander, etc. because, you know, uh, next thing you know, they're asking me not to run certain things. Uh, and then I might feel, you know, like, well, you know, you might, that's where you might have people where you start, you know, get into arguments of, well, that's nothing compared to what I asked you not to bring. Um, so that's why I think uh, trying to just overcome uh, the things that are giving you a hard time is a much more productive uh, way to go about things than, you know, asking people not to run things or uh, making people feel sorry for running uh, certain certain builds, certain units, etc. Um, definitely uh, appreciate you bringing that up because it was, I think, a, definitely a, a great uh, kind of uh, side topic there. Um, 
we'll jump right back into these last two missions before we run out of time. Uh, we have Here We Stand. Um, this one, a lot of people hate this mission. And to be totally honest with you, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, maybe it's because I've played it so much and I, I feel like I kind of have, you know, I'm above the, the learning curve with it and I feel like I have like an advantage. Um, an advantage in the sense that, you know, I'm experienced in the mission. Uh, but um, I absolutely love this mission, and I know a lot of people don't like it because, you know, you constantly have to measure and kind of have to figure out where everything's at. But that's kind of why I like it. I like the extra layer of strategy of trying to figure out what quadrant things are in. And because, you know, it may seem, you know, it's a two-by-two two quadrant, uh, you know, four two-by-two two quadrants, um, but... You know, once you get closer to that middle, especially like the very center, uh, you know, the quadrants, they're all touching, uh, you know, in the center, obviously. So it's not like it's this huge area where, like, it's impossible to get to any one quadrant. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to cross over from one quadrant to another and to really, uh, you know, um, outplay your opponent. I feel like this mission has so much potential for outplaying your, uh, which is why I actually like it a lot. Um, but I would say uh, this mission definitely favors, uh, from my experience, um, higher activation like Horde, you know, so Greyjoys and Free Folk. Uh, the reason being is that they're able to run a ton of combat units while still running three NCUs. And I feel like three NCUs is really good for this mission. Um, because a lot of times that third NCU, uh, if your opponent also has three, doesn't have anywhere to go. Um, granted, you're not going to be able to activate it uh, to do anything um, when the rules change, but uh, you can always even place someone on the board preemptively uh, to make sure there is room on the board or, uh, you know, or even just having three, that fifth spot might not be useful enough, but then throwing your NCU on the board uh, could be, you know, game-changing, especially if you're going to run a five-point NCU because they can claim a quadrant all by themselves. So I would say, you know, if you, if it's possible, and not every faction's able to do it, but uh, I definitely like three NCU for this mission. Um, and, uh, you know, still a, a decent amount of combat units. You definitely, um, I found that, uh, like, this kind of goes with Clash of Kings in a sense, is uh, running your commander because your commander provides three extra points worth of uh, point value for determining how many points are in a quadrant. And him in, uh, in like, a really big unit is... Uh, you know, really hard to um, contest. So let's say, for example, uh, one that I've liked running is um, Elden and some Stagnites. The unit's basically unkillable, and but it's, um, and I know it's a hefty eight points, so the eight points plus Elden makes it 11 points for one unit, and he can, you know, control a whole zone himself pretty much, while the rest of your force kind of goes on the offense, tries to contest and, you know, take over your opponent's uh, spot. So I think um, you could kind of tie this one in with um, Clash of Kings a little bit 
because if you can throw like an eight point, even possibly seven point unit commander that's super offensive and survivable, um, and really control a zone, uh, I think that's one of your best uh, tactics is three NCUs, um, and then maybe like a, a really big uh, investment uh, in your commander and then some more cheaper units uh, to kind of still keep that, uh, you know, possibly eight activations. I know that's kind of pricey because you're looking at three NCUs at 12 points um, for each, and then, you know, an eight-point unit possibly. That's You're looking at half your points to do that. So um, it's going to be really hard to kind of fill in those, the last 20 points with four units unless you're looking at uh, four or five-pointers. But... Uh, you know, you could even downgrade the commanders to a seven point, then like run three five points and a six point. A six point could be like the range unit to help you out there. But uh, one thing to keep in mind though for this mission is that uh, uh, you can bring back any one unit at the start of every round, um, but they come on activated. So really, you know, it only really matters uh, from my experience, like turn three, maybe four, uh, because then they might get one more or two more actions. But really, it just matters about getting those points back on the um, the quad on the board to get into those quadrants. And like I was mentioning, that really uh, adds to the layer of strategy of where are you going to put this unit. Um, I can't tell you how many times that this mission, more than any other, has close. Like it's down to the wire, you know, it's it's like a point a point or two victory point difference, and then it comes down to that last turn, getting certain units moved into a certain quadrant to start to contest, you know, trying to play tricky with your NCUs to try to contest or control a, a quadrant. So, um, so, yeah, I would say that's, that's probably kind of the best advice I have for building for this mission, is uh, um, three NCUs, uh, a bunch of cheaper five-pointer units, six-pointer units, and um, uh, like a, a super commander unit. Um, now you could put your commander in a cheaper unit and then just have them be kind of more expensive, like a six-point unit. So now you see nine points, but I, I've, I've had a lot more success with running them in like a seven, eight-point unit. Uh, what about you, Brett? How do you feel about Here We Stand? Uh, it looks like Brett had to do something with work real quick. So, um, let's see. So, uh, let me find a a suitable uh, list that I can kind of give you guys that I, I think um, would do well. Let's see here. Um, one that I like a lot... Uh, you know, this one doesn't have three NCUs, um, but uh, I find that uh, it does really well uh, still for this mission. Um, it's uh, a free folk list. We got Sens with uh, Man's Commander. Um, again, I, I know this this one, I guess, contradicts a lot with uh, what I had just said, um, but it has a lot of board presence. Um, and a lot of uh, tough-to-kill units that really just tie up your opponent. Um, so we got Thens with uh, Mance. We have uh, 
two raider units, each with a Waller's chieftain. Um, and the re- uh, another reason why I suggest this list is because um, this list has like that bubble, um, and because there's no objectives on this mission, you're, it really allows you to keep that bubble together because Mance will make uh, anyone within short of him uh, five up morale. Um, so those two raider units uh, with chieftains are now a five up, uh, five up, five up defense, five up morale with the resilience rule. And even if you eat through those raiders, finally, um, you know they're worth no victory points. That and the Wallace chieftains make them because Wallace chieftains are two points. It makes the free folk raider these two free folk raider units uh, uh, five point units allowing them to control a zone themselves. Because uh, that's the one problem with raiders is that on their own, if, if they just happen to be off on their own in, their, in the quadrant, uh, no matter what, you can't control that zone unless you have at least five points. Um, meaning you'll have to dedicate a uh, NCU with the unit, which is something you don't want to have to rely on. Um, next up, your wife units, each with a matriarch. Uh, I know a lot of people like uh, champion a bone or some other attachment, but I still stand by that swift retreat. Uh, Spearwives um, with swift retreat means that even if I can't get off my uh, coordinated assault or charging valley, sorry, charging valley uh, effect, that you're going to charge me, I'm going to get a free retreat, and then I'm going to be able to still pull my combo off on you. That and you've possibly overextended yourself, allowing me to get... Uh, possibly even both spear wife units double tapping into a unit. Um, and then lastly, I have a free folk raider unit with a raid leader. Um, uh, and that completes the units. That's uh, six combat units. Um, and then we have Steyr and Craster. So Steyr I like in this list. One, I mean, Steyr's good uh, uh, in, in, in itself, but... Uh, I like him because he is five points, meaning that if nothing is in a certain quadrant and you're in because you do have eight activations, if you out-activate your opponent um, or even have the last activation that round, if you both have eight, you can put Steyr onto the board, onto like the f- battlefield, and control a zone all by himself. And then lastly, got Craster for some, uh, just some healing and tactics card draw. Uh, this list uh, I've had a lot of success with, especially in this mission, but uh, just in general. Uh, Spearwives are a very strong unit, as Brett was kind of mentioning uh, before. Um, you know, and then you have these Sens with Mance and then these two Raider units with Chieftains making this like nearly impossible to kill bubble of three units that you can just run up the center of the field, run up the spear wives on the side. You can keep like these raiders in the back, uh, kind of feeding um, wounds into these other units if you have uh, regroup and reform. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, give that list a try. Um, all right, before we go on I'm to back, the last the way. mission. Okay, yeah, I was just about to ask. So what's your opinion <laughs> on honed and ready? Or sorry, not Honda Rennie. Here we stand. Here we stand. Um, yeah, I think, again, you covered some of the general rules. This is definitely a mission um, like Honed and Ready that's going to kind of benefit 3NCU a little bit more. Um, with Honed and Ready, you want to have the liberty to 
you know, take advantage of the arrows, especially on rounds where you go first and you get to place three NCUs on the board. Um, those arrow shots are huge. Um, and then in here we stand, as you mentioned. Um, it can become kind of a game within the game. You're playing the normal version of the game, you know, where you want to own spots of the field, whether that's by killing or by getting to objectives and things like this. So this one you want to own particular spots of the field, but there's a certain point where you can do just what you mentioned and try to contest their side of the board. Because if you think about it, if you do like a, okay, I control these two, you control those two, great, um, life's good. But if you're able to, you know, get a five-point NCU in a zone that, uh, you know, maybe you've got one of your five-point units in and they're like, okay, he's got that zone, it's fine. But then you're able to march into their zone and do something else to take over one of their zones and you score three in a round and they only score one, it can start to snowball really quickly. There are cases, too, where, you know, you've destroyed a combat unit or two um, this is a game that can really snowball out of control super fast where the score can be like, you know, it's two to three where you've got two and they've got three and it doesn't seem that bad, but all of a sudden they've got three points because they killed three of your combat units and then they end up taking all four board quarters and it goes from three to two seeming like it's kind of manageable, like, yeah, I'm getting this unit back, but because of the nature of this mission, it's seven to two before you know it and the game, like you're just out of it. You're just down, you can't come back from that. Um, all they've really got to do is focus on the mission at that point, just guarantee that, you know, the, the last two rounds they score two and they don't even have to kill anything for the rest of the game and they could win like 11 to four or something like that. The point at which you steal all the board quarters and score four points, I think, Unless something crazy's happened, the game's pretty much over at that point. They're not going to be able to make a furious comeback for the most part. So it's an interesting one. I like it, but then at the same time, I kind of don't. Um, I'm not crazy about missions where the score can just snowball that badly over some some misfortune. You know, it's already bad enough when things die and you didn't really expect them to or you didn't want them to or something like that, but with how fast this mission can snowball, it's pretty harsh. Um, but it's not terrible, so it's just not my favorite. I like the strategy that's involved in it, but yeah, again, just like I said, with the ability for things to really, 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 really just get away from you in one round, you know, it seems pretty rough. Yeah. Um all right, let's see here. Just one more mission to talk about. We're running a little short on time, so try not to make it too long because I do want to end with some shout-outs. Um, so we got the – man, my phone's kind of freaking out. <laughs> um, Fire and Blood. Uh, so for this one, it's another mission where there are no objectives. Um, also 18-inch deployment, just like uh, here we stand. Um, you know, this mission has, I feel like, a lot of mixed feelings. There's a lot of people that love this mission. There's a lot of people that don't really like it. Uh, in my opinion, it's immensely better than it used to be. Um, I don't know all the details anymore of what it used to be, but, uh, you know, let's just put it this way. It's, it's a million times better now. 
So you take objective cards six through ten. Basically, those are precision, sundering, uh, vicious, um, uh, weakened after uh, when you attack someone, you make them weakened, and uh, highest die value. Um, whoever is going first uh, picks uh, the first unit of their opponent, and then they pick uh, then the opponent picks which of the uh, five abilities that unit gets, and you each pick two units uh, back and forth. So um, all but highest attack die value only works on melee. Um, so I've found that this mission, you can kind of play around by picking um, uh, certain units to be marked that won't be able to benefit, uh, in particular, like ranged units. Um, but what I like to do is whoever is the obvious choice um, for a marked unit, I like to actually pick them second. So I like to think about which two units I'm going to overall pick. And then whatever one I think is going to be the biggest problem uh, is going to be the one I pick second. Because you have to remember that there's only one of each of these uh, abilities that especially if um, your opponent has to pick first, so their unit is their second unit is going to be the last one to pick, that means they're only going to have two objectives to pick from, um, especially if you take, like, the highest attack die value one or someone does, and then you pick a range unit, uh, forcing them to have to take uh, a, a melee-only ability. So... Um, so that's definitely something to keep in mind when you're um, just when you're playing the mission itself. But as far as building for it, um, I would say that uh, you know this is still this kind of falls under the realm of here we stand and uh, Clash of King. I think just having a very strong uh, elite force, I think more so than most missions, is where this. Uh, um, game mode will, you'll thrive in this game mode. So, you know, already mentioned before, but that's just because it's an easy thing to mention. It's like Drogo and Blood Riders. I mean, you're not going to want to mark that thing. But if you have, like, an elite list where, like, you have four really scary units, um, you know, it's like a four and three, you know, four scary units and three NCUs, and your opponent has no good options to pick, you know, it really helps you to uh, keep the momentum on your side the whole game. Whereas if you can mark some squishy units um, and you have like a double heavy cav uh, list, you're able to just kind of run across that board and kill them quickly because, again, 18-inch uh, deployment, you know, means that if both people deploy max, they're only you're only 12 inches apart. Uh, that's also, you know, another reason to, uh, why you're probably going to want to run a ranged unit in this list or uh, in a lit, uh, air in this mission, because uh, you're if you're able to go first, which you'll know uh, before you start deploying, if you have the like you'll know if you have the option to let's say depending on who wins the dice off, um, will determine how far you can deploy. So that you know, because if you know if you win the dice off, your opponent has to pick their side and then deploy first, means that you know you can pick to go first. 
assuming then you could take the free attack with your ranged unit and start shooting things um, uh, early on and get some a lot of extra shots in there. Um, or even, you know, if you have a cavalry unit and you're going first, you could try to make sure that you're getting the, the first charge off, um, if that's what you're hoping for. Um, this mission has, even though it has no objectives and it seems pretty straightforward, because of the how close you deploy, uh, it, it does make it um, a lot more uh, tactical than it might seem. Um, you know, you really have to think about what you're going to do because if you just kind of throw everything at 18 inches no matter what deploy it all up close and you know your opponent could really steamroll you early when you're that close together and you just kind of deploy them uh what i like to do a lot of times is i'll deploy 10 inches or you know 15 inches enough to where even if my opponent deploys 18 and then they shift two with their range attack, and then they have 12 inches, I'm still out of range. Um, or make it to where, like, if they want to charge me with their cavalry, they're probably going to need a five or a six um, on, the, on the charge. So keeping that stuff in mind. But as far as list building for this mission, I think, you know, range units and cavalry really thrive. Like, elite lists, but also... Uh, ranged in cavalry. That's where you're going to want to like focus for this mission. Um, so, and I think that's it's nice that it is like that because um, you know a lot of the other missions, you know, they're not like s- obvious choices for elite um, factions, in my opinion. Um, unless maybe you're talking about the first two we talked about with. Uh, um, with morale, you know, if you're running like an elite four to units that all have amazing morale, I guess you, you could uh, make that argument. But um, in this mission in particular, I feel like uh, super elite lists um, will definitely thrive. What's your thoughts, uh, Brett? Yeah, I mean, I still, I kind of like this mission. Um, again, it's it can be a little bit anti-meta. Um, there's no possible way that I would deploy my Tyrion list, for example, with the, the three poor fellows, um, because they would just get marked. And um, more on that in just a second. But it's, it's a little bit anti-meta because, for the most part, at, at least on the tournament side, the the more popular meta lists hinge on several cheap units, several cheap activations that sort of support and empower one or two big heavier hitters. And those units are punished in this scenario because they can be marked for two additional victory points. Um, that can really put you in a spot. Um, additionally, the ability for units that are marked to score points for killing units is pretty substantial. Um, your commander can also put victory points on units that wouldn't otherwise you know, normally give up a victory point, like freedmen who never grant victory points uh, I'm pretty sure Michael Chennault ruled that units are granting victory points from the mission, not from themselves. So you would be able to score victory points off of Friedman, for example. Um, I like that aspect. I personally find it to be really boring, um, lacking creativity to 
generally always run these spammy kind of armies. So anything that punishes that style of play is something that I like. The disadvantage to Fire and Blood can be in its own right. It can also be another little bit of a game within a game. You can run something like my Ruthless that's almost entirely 3-plus defense. You know, it's got the Roost Guardsmen, two Flayed Men, tons of healing, and then the poor fellows really just support. They don't even really have to be on the front line. You could park them literally behind your three units just to war cry out. And anyways, you can play that mission to survive as much as possible and just rack up all the victory points that you can on one unit and then kill that unit and get, you know, if it's a marked unit and you put four victory points on it, you kill it with a marked unit, you're getting eight victory points. And you can do stuff like that. Like, you can kind of pick and choose what you kill, and you can, to an extent, you can even, like, kind of stop attacking a unit just so that you can put more victory points on it to make it worth more points and kind of close the game out that way. It's a little bit cheesy. I don't think you see it super often, but I have seen it. And I've seen some extreme examples of it where the opponent actually used the money bags to heal opponent's units so that they could keep them alive <laughs> and put more victory points on them. You know, it was like the score was like four to something or another, and they knew, you know, this unit had five was worth five points, and the opponent knew the win con, and so they were trying to get rid of that unit while it was only worth five so that another victory point couldn't be put on them. They healed the unit, put another victory point on them, then killed them, and then it was ten points and game. So stuff like that can happen. It's not super common, but overall I do like the mission. It rewards list building more for elites, like you said. Um, if you give them a 4-3 list and three of the units are really, really, really nasty units, they're going to have to mark something that's really nasty. Um, so I like it in that regard. Yeah, I I would say I definitely... I mean, it's one of those... It's, one of the things we mentioned a while back when we uh, went over each of the missions when they were first revealed, um, and it kind of stays true to today for me, uh, I like all the missions a lot. So it's, you know, I enjoy playing all of them with the exception of Dark Wings, Dark Words. And again, my only gripe with it, that one is the game just ends too quick. Like, um, I just... You know, you do, you do all that setup and you play the game and then for it to end round three, round four at the absolute most, uh, usually it, that's the only reason I don't like that one. But um, otherwise, otherwise, I think Simon's done an amazing job with, uh, with these missions. So, um, But we're running out of time there, guys, uh, and, you know, a bit of a longer episode. I do appreciate all you guys for listening in. Um, you know, I do want to do one last uh, shout-out uh, for the Marvel Zombies again. Definitely check that out. I believe the Kickstarter started about 30 minutes ago. Um, and then uh, also a shout-out to uh, um, Gamers Haven. Um, you know, you can check out uh, Sunday Slaughter. That's uh, Gamer ha- Gamers Haven is their local. Um, so definitely check them out. Amazing uh, podcasts, amazing uh, battle reports. Um, you know, if you're looking for someone to support. Uh, but with that said, guys, I, I'm super happy to be back, and I can't wait to do more episodes. This is the Small Council Radio, and it is dismissed. <laughs>